Okay, Boker Tov, everybody. Um, I hope everybody has a, what my teacher used to call a hymn sheet, but I don't, I'm not going to explain what that is. A hymn sheet, but no, if you know what I mean. Um, a bit more than hymns. Um, firstly, just to say how delightful it is to be back here. Uh, it was uh, such a, a ta'anug, it was a pleasure to be involved with this group um, during, Pash, during the, some of the Parshiyot of Breshit, and now we come into Shemot, and uh, it's nice to sort of kick off Shemot with you as well. Um, before we start, I just want to dedicate this year in memory of a friend that I hadn't seen for many years, but unfortunately passed away last week from London, somebody called Benny Tiefenbrunner. Um, Mrs. Tiefenbrunner, his mother, I think, was a teacher at the Menorah, I think, for years. I think she was a teacher in one of the schools in London. Uh, Benny was a contemporary and uh, unfortunately really passed away at a very young age. Uh, and I want to dedicate this year in his memory. It should be uh, for a blessing for his neshama. And really we should only celebrate Smachot together. Um, ah, okay. Okay, that's also important. Um, I think on the email you gave, the, I don't remember the name, but... Um, again, we should mention uh, for Shleim. I, I, I'm very concerned that you know we're all being very, um, not the word indifferent because that's not the word, but we're definitely not as serious about COVID. I think he has COVID. Is that right? I, uh, I think so. Yeah. So we just got to be a little bit more vigilant. If you haven't had your shots, or as the Brits would call it, you haven't had your jab, then please make sure you get it. You know, as soon as you can possibly arrange it. Um, all right, we are going to look at Parshat Breshit, Parshat Shemot, excuse me, and we're going to be talking uh, a little bit from the beginning, a little bit from the middle, and a little bit from the end. Right? There's so much material, such a rich Parsha that in an hour to uh, talk about the whole Parsha, I think, is um, very foolhardy. It's just you're never going to get through it. But what I want to de- show you a little bit from the beginning, something which uh, you may have heard before, some of you. Um, and this is a very curious item. We know that we're told in the in the parsha, and I just want to quote the pasuk. But I brought my chumash. Just going to get it out. The, just there we go. The famous pasuk. We we've read it already twice this week. Um, Right? They increased and multiplied and whatever translation you can fit into those words. It basically, we know that there are poro one, two, three, four, five, six words. And and the land was filled with them. And the famous Rashi comment, six words, six children. Every time a woman gave birth, I don't really want to elaborate on this point because I, it really is mind-blowing. The whole story of, of, of the Jews in Egypt is very mind-blowing. Uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, significant issues which I hope maybe we'll clear up today. Uh, and firstly, this question of six uh, children each time. Um, on the page in front of you, at number one, or A as I've called it, dealing with the numbers, uh, there's a very interesting piece from Reb Zalman Sorotskin. Zalman Sorotskin was one of the uh, very significant leaders. He got here saved from the... Uh, um, from, from Europe, and he arrived in Eretz Israel, I think, 1940s, and passed away in 1965. It was a very, very uh, good uh, darshan, and the, many people, uh, I think, uh, still remember his drashot. And his father-in-law was a very, very famous gentleman by the name of Blazer Gordon. And I've just brought here, before we just read what Rabbi Gordon writes, um, just a historical note. Again, for those who come from London, it's very curious. Now, Rebbeza Gordon, this very great Gaon, the Tells the Rosh Yeshiva. We know there's Tells Yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio, for those who maybe have come from there or been there. And there is Tellstone, which is just up the road here, which is also a branch of the organization, the, tell, the original Tells Yeshiva from, from Lithuania. And the Rosh Yeshiva, Rebbeza Gordon, um, was really world famous, absolutely world famous in terms of his, ter- his Torah teaching. Even to this day in the Shivot, they study his books. And it's, an, it's a curious story. And it's a strange story that in fact he's buried, you would tell, uh, yeah, if I asked you, where is he buried? 
you'll say to me, well, probably Lithuania, maybe Ushalayim, who knows? And the answer is he's buried in Edmonton, London. Not Edmonton, Canada, Edmonton, London. Fascinating. I, I saw his cave uh, a few years ago when I was looking for my grandparents' uh, tombstones there. They're both buried in Edmonton, which is an old cemetery in North London. And there's a big OL, there's a big uh, a building there, and it's Rebleza Gorn who's buried there. So I did a bit of research. I, I, you know, it struck me. What, why is he buried there? He's from Lithuania. What was he, what, you know, what's the connection? Um, and it turns out it's a rather sad story. What he came to London, tells the original city had a fire, a very serious fire, 1908. And a lot of the buildings burnt down, and he was desperate to revive the city, to revive the, I think even the yeshiva buildings were affected. I remember those days, what, what did they build? It probably would, right? And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty scary. And he needed to fundraise. And he, was, uh, he had a heart condition. He was, really wasn't a well man. But for the yeshiva, he literally traveled as far as he could go, and he came to London. And they arranged a, um, what we call, I suppose in America it's called a parlor meeting, I don't know what they call it in England, getting together, get a few ashirim together to try and raise money. And he came to the parlor meeting and he got a sound rejection from everybody. It was really, really quite scandalous what happened. And he was so distraught at the end of the meeting that he went out, and walking along the streets of London, probably the east end of London, Whitechapel, the name of the neighborhood, he collapsed and unfortunately he died on the street. And he is buried in Edmonton. And the story goes that when people heard about this, firstly, the community was horrendously embarrassed by what, 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 what had not happened. They didn't support it. And they didn't even realize how great this man was. Um, and secondly, the Leviah. Uh, I tried to get a picture of the Leviah, and I couldn't. Uh, it's in the archive of the London Jewish newspaper called the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, and one can, if you can access the archives, you can look it up. It was the biggest Leviah ever in London. 50,000 people came to this Leviah. Unbelievable. And if you know the neighborhood, you know, it must have been... There must, it's like the Leviahs in Bnei Brak. You know, the whole... Everything shuts down for, for 10 miles around. And that must have happened in London on that day. His Yotza is coming up. The fourth of Adar... Uh, and again, may his merit protect us. So that's a little bit of a historical note. I just wanted to bring you uh, that item because Blazer Gordon really was a, was a Gaon Olam. He was an unbelievable Gaon. And in the piece at the bottom here, he, uh, there's a story. Rabbi Sarozkin brings this from Rabbi Gordon. And he says Rabbi Gordon was once approached by a musk of someone who I don't think was, was anti-religious, but was a questioner. A gentleman who asked him, I, I'm not sure about this six babies, you know, each time, how, how does that work out? How is that, uh, not how is it possible, but, you know, does it really make sense? And he asked Rabbi Gordon for an explanation. And Rabbi Gordon came out with something which is quite remarkable. He said, look at the numbers. I'll just show you a little bit here on what he wrote. And again, the, uh, always we say, otiot machimot, the words make you smart. So let's just look at, the, um, where it is at the bottom of page one, on the side where there's an asterisk, right? Kochavit. And it says, There was a gentleman who thought he was being smart. And he asked him a question. And he was questioning this whole tradition, the rabbinic tradition of six in one shot. Right? Six babies each time. And And this man was claiming, it's far-fetched, to put it mildly. And Rabbi Gordon said to him, let's open up a Chumash. Are you prepared to study Chumash with me? And the man said, yes, I am prepared to study Chumash. And it's very interesting. He said... Let's look firstly at the number of Jews that came out of Egypt. And again, we know, uh, this is a little bit of math, but I'll, I'll try and simplify it. 600,000 uh, men between 20 and 60, right? So if you then talk about the children, and you talk about the people over the age of 60, you, traditionally you double it. Approximately 1.2 million males come out of Mitzrayim. 1.2 million males. That's information uh, point number one. He, on the third paragraph, right, and um, I'll just read it, if, you, if you're with me, in the same uh, section at the bottom on page one, the top line of the third paragraph, 
As anali mori v'chomi, analo mori v'chomi, my father-in-law said to this man, sheyesh raya sheyna le'pichami a statistika. Right? Even though you say statistics go against the idea of six in one shot, I'll bring you a proof. And it's something from the Torah. Uh, go to the next line, the end of the fourth line. I'm going to prove it to you. They had six in each bird. And he said, let's look at the number of firstborn. He said, it's very curious. When at the end of, um, uh, not the end, beginning I think, it was Sefer Bamidbar, it says the number Bechorim, firstborn children, 22,000. That's a number, you can check it out, I should have brought it on the page, but it's written, I think he brings it in this particular paragraph. 22,000, now if you do your math, if you've got your uh, computer with you, or your, uh, your uh, whatever, your, your cell phone, or whatever it is, you can, you've got a calculator on there. If you do the 1.2 million, which is the number of males that we, we, we believe came out of Egypt, and you divide it by 22,000 firstborn, which is referring to the male firstborns, then... Amazingly, you come out with a number which I believe is 1.2 million divided by 22,000 comes out at 55. 55. So each family, because each firstborn is, represents one family. So you have 22,000 firstborn. You have each family of 55 children, right? Because that's how it works out. So you'll say to me, Kanaina Hara, 55 children. I mean, we talk about grandchildren. And Ninim, you know, if one's Zoha to have such a, a large family, and it's, it's, uh, today we're seeing that, it's beautiful. But the reality in those days, how did this play out? And says Rabbi, Rabbi Sorosky, in the name of his father in law, he says, if you think about it, how many pregnancies in reality did the women have? The average life expectancy, like we say, Shivim Shana, Shmonim Shana, who knows, maybe 70 years. He claims that maybe the, the average life um, um, time number of pregnancies that women would uh, have in that pe- in time period would be approximately 10 pregnancies, okay? Which I guess is probably true even today, you know, we, we uh, uh, that's the sort of number we would put on it today as well. So he says, do the math, it's 55 per family, 10 pregnancies, how many have you got in each pregnancy? How many babies are born? Five babies, five to six children, six in one shot. So he says, if you take the, the Torah information, plus what we know about the numbers that came out of Egypt, it's not so far-fetched to understand that we're talking about five or six children at each time that a woman gave birth, which gives the women eventually that number of children that works out according to the number of firstborn, dividing it into the number of males that came out of Egypt, and there you've got your six in every birth that took place. Right? Whether that registered with you or not, I leave you to think about it. Uh, Rev. Gordon said at the time, he said, this is something which, if you follow that, that uh, numbering system in the Torah, then you've got at least a framework in which to understand how this number came about. Not just because the number of words, like I said before, but also, if you actually do the math, it does seem to um, give a number which is you know, realistically, within, within the number that Chazal mentioned. Five to six children each time, right? What I've always wondered is about how many midwives were working at that time. And of course, Chazal say there were the two famous midwives, Shifra and Pua, right? That's five, but two for that, you know, for those multiple births all the time. With all due respect, you know, they're on strike all over the way, even in New York now. The nurses are on strike. And the reality of it is, you know, with all due respect, I think all the midwives would be out on strike immediately. This would be impossible to deal with. And of course, Chazal say that they went into the field and they gave birth by themselves. Sorry? Can, can, I, can I contradict you a little bit in this sense? I hear once that only a fifth of the, of the Israeli, of the army Israel came out of the Correct. And Chumashim and, and, and there means that uh, only the adults were, uh, like 80% of the people passed away, but then we are only talking about the adults. Correct. Chumashim means that because the, the 20% that were staying, they took over the children from the 80% that passed That also would lead to the Also example. with that. That's Meaning they might not have had everybody six children at once, but because the old... After, like, in the end of the day, there were so many children to adopt. From the other ones, they came to like Kailo having six. Absolutely, months. absolutely. And it f- explain that too because it would not make uh, any discrimination.
occupancy. She wouldn't have had at six duplex each time, but taking in all the other children. Putting it all together, perfect. And there, there is a target you want to turn about that. It's fascinating. Okay, so thank you for that because that's also an addition to it. I'm just going on the bare math of what what we see from the Torah, and that is pretty amazing. If you think about it, it works out at you know for uh, every pregnancy six children. Please. First, I would say six days of creation. Ah, okay. Do it without the six. Couldn't do anything without the six days of creation. Okay. Could go on to all the other sixes and. And then you work it out. Yeah, it's it, 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 there's room here for, you know, Gabachu uh, and who knows what. But I, I, I just love the fact that, you know, that Rabbi Gordon was prepared to take on the question and say to the man, you're, you're asking about statistics. Here we go. Let me show you a little bit of a framework from the Torah, which surprisingly fits into the rabbinic uh, definition of what was going on. So I just thought, you know, I threw that out. He's uh, just look at the last words on the on page two. And he says, mm-hmm. So Rabbi Sorosky points out from his father-in-law, it's a mitzvah to to, to uh, publicize what we just studied. That that item that you know, the fact, at the end of the day, the rabbinic uh, calculation not so far from the reality if you take the numbers according to the way the Torah presents it. So I leave you to ponder on that and to think about it, but I think it's, it's, it's really something worthy of note. The big issue which I want to deal with is something which has bothered me for many, many years. I've got it here on page two. And have a look at these psukim and we'll uh, immediately you know, be reminded of something that we all know. Uh, in the negotiation that eventually Moshe has with Pharaoh, and even before that, there is mention over and over again of the Jews leaving Egypt for three days. Right? It says they'll go for three days, Lisbach, Lashem, to make an offering, then they'll come back. And it says it again, and again, I've got here how many references? One, two, three, four. Four references, or probably even more references, uh, allusions to the fact that Am Yisrael, it seems to be, part of what was going on is to say they're going to leave for three days, and then they're going to come back. And of course, Pharaoh in the end, Pharaoh says no. He, uh, he hardened his heart and he says, you're not even going for three days. And that's when the, the whole process of Exodus really kicked in. However, what is this three days? In the end of the day, and this is a question which was raised by Shlomo Goran, and I think the Rechaim originally raised this question as well. Three, if you're saying to Pharaoh, we're going for three days, you don't mean it. There is a concept which is called in, in Hebrew, and we know this concept very well, called Geneva Dat. You're actually stealing the mind. What, what's Genevat done? One of the classic examples, I don't want to bring this as a, as a, an, any more than an example, but if you go into a store and you drive the, um, the, the assistant crazy for an hour, trying on every dress in the store, or every man, if he tries on every pair of pants in the store, and then he walks out buying nothing, then there is a danger that halachically there is a question, have you committed something called Gnevada? You led the person to think that something was going to happen, a sale was going to take place, and then you turn around and just walk down. Okay, that is again one example, but there are many, many examples. Example where you've got to be careful not, literally means to steal the mind of the person to deceive the person in that kind of way, which leads to disappointment or, or potentially even something even worse. The Gemara talks about it in, in, in quite great detail. And Rabbi Goran asked the question, isn't this Genevat done on Pharaoh? At the end of the day, you're saying to him, three days. I'm going out for three days. But if you're not going out for three days. If you go out, you're going to go out and never come back. So what's going on? I'll just show you the Psukim. Listen to this. First, it's on page 2, and it's these, I call it the three-day ploy. And firstly, Shmot, chapter 3, this is God talking to Moshe, uh, the burning bush story. Go to the king of Egypt. God has called to us. We'll go for three days in the desert. Three days, right? And then it goes on in chapter 5, the next quote. And then they said that the God of the Hebrews has called to us. This when Moshe arrives in Mitzrayim. Again, three days. And then chapter 8 of Shemot. Again, three days. 
Right? What's going on? Why talk about this three-day period? Is the three-day period something which is, you're, you're just playing along with Pharaoh? I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, Ishemet. And to, to suggest that there is a, a, a uh, you know, Kanunya, there's kind of a trick going on here, it's, not, it's very difficult to suggest that. I, I wouldn't want to suggest such a thing. Look at the, the next line, which is all part of that Pasuk. Uh, Don't go far. So Pharaoh originally says, yeah, you can go, but only a short distance, essentially three days. And then chapter 10 they came back to Paro finally when all the thing really came to a head after the plagues and Pharaoh said who's going we'll go with our, our children our, el, our old people our young people all our animals so he said to them I'm not going to let everybody go only the men and, and he says, you can go and serve God. That's what you want. And again, suggestion is only on a very limited basis is he prepared to let them leave the country. So there is this toing and froing all the time about three days. What is this whole thing of three days? Right? At the end of the day, what should have happened? A simple negotiation. Pharaoh says no. Moshe says yes. They, they kind of get together. You know, maybe they'll have a, a, someone in the middle of Metavech or someone to, to help them out. And in the end, you know, Pharaoh will have to say yes and Moshe will say goodbye and that's the end of the story. But what's this, you know, playing around come for three days and maybe yes and maybe no? It's strange. And it's a theme. It's come from Shemot chapter 3 right through to Shemot chapter 10. And Rav Gorin says something here which I can honestly say for me, it changed the whole story. It really did change the story of the Siyam Mitzrayim. It's very hard when you've been learning Chumash for a long time to, to, get, to get a kick out of you know, the, the story. We all get it. Uh, you know what I mean. We learn the story and they're beautiful stories and they're inspirational stories and they're, they're, everything is fabulous. But the reality is to get something, a Chiddush, something which I haven't really appreciated before, is really very exciting. So listen to this. I'll show you this paragraph at the bottom of page 2. It's a, it, it's a bombshell. He says, This is such a problem. This three-day ploy. What's going on? Rav Gorm is a very big mechadesh. He really... Was, he, he stuck his neck out in, in many ways, in halacha as well. But certainly here, in his safe is beautiful. It says, I want to suggest the following. Whoever thought of that? The Exodus was going to go in two stages. Wow. I thought Exodus means, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. No. They were going to do a two-stage Yitziat Mitzrayim. And it's unbelievable. Hashlava Rishon, And the three days is the first stage of the Exodus. Let's get them out for three days, and then they'll come back. So you'll say to me, what's the point of that? Right? The whole nation out and back in three days. I mean, you know, you try taking a bunch of kids on a trip for half a day and you'll realize how difficult it is and you're taking a whole nation for three days. Logistics, I mean, it's mind-blowing. But what's going on here? Listen to this. It says, uh, the third line of that, of that paragraph, again, a three-day festival in the, in, the, uh, in the desert, you know, and that's what we're going to do. Now, and the Rambam explains what's going on. And this links a little bit to what was said before. Katav, the Rambam explains, this is actually in the Rambam Hilchot Avodat Zara, so it's in his Halacha. I thought it was Mori Nevuchim, but it's not. Rambam writes, the end of the fourth line, The Jews were in Egypt for a long time. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to say this, even though it might disappoint everybody in the room. I use the expression at the bottom, plus a change. Plus a change here means that when Amisra is living in a Gola, and they get established, in the, even if they're there as slaves, they're established in the Gola, essentially something happens which history repeats itself over and over again, and it's called assimilation. And boy, are we we feeling this at the moment. Um, in America, it's just it's frightening. 
I mean, the, the numbers are just up and up and up, right? 70, 75% simulation. Every second marriage in America of a Jew is to a non-Jew. And, and this is going on, which is really, really scary and frightening and is, is a concern for everybody. Every, you know, every, anyone in education, for instance, is, should be very, very concerned, as, as should we all. And he says in Egypt, you know what? Things happen of a similar nature. And back to the page, fifth line, middle of the line. The and this is Rama. And we know that with, there's a tradition the Jews went down to the 49th level of Tumah. What does that mean? That they served idolatry. Except for the Levim, who stood by the tradition of their fathers, meaning they remained loyal to God. So they did not do idolatry. And it seems that in Egypt, everything that Avraham had planted in the world as Amisra, the beginning of the Jewish people, was being uprooted. Everything was disappearing. In other words, without God's help, keeping the promise to Avraham to bring the Jews out, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu did. And says Rabbi Goran, this is a mind blower. Wow. The majority of Jews assimilated in Egypt. It's, 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 it's staggering. They want to leave. They didn't want to leave. And he brings a, a, an argument, if you go to page 3, which I'm not going to go through from the Gemara Sanhedrin, um, where he says that the percentage was very, was very small. If we go from that top paragraph, one, two, three, four, f- uh, five lines down, um, just one second, where am I going here? Yeah, yeah sorry, six, seven lines down. And this is what was mentioned before, when it says in Shemot, chapter 13, the Jews went out, Chamushim literally means with weapons, but the rabbis play on the word Chamushim from the word Chamesh, five. Pirish Rashi, Dovach Chamushim, Mechumashim, Echad Mechamisha Yatsu. Only one in five left Egypt. Wow. Dalat Chalakim Metu Bishloshimea Fela, four fifths of the people died during the darkness. Which again doesn't bear thinking about. When you're talking in those numbers, it's a, it's, it's a discussion which I can't even begin to have because it's just overwhelming. But, listen to this. Who are the four-fifths? The Eilu Otam Shid Bololu They must be the ones who are assimilated. Shilorotu Lotzei B'Mitzrayim. They want to leave. Shilorotu Lifrosh Me'avodah Zarah Mikol Tovah B'Mitzrayim. They wanted to stay in the, as the Possek says, the flesh pots of Egypt. They want to leave. It's too good for us. It's too, pardon me for saying this, it's too good for us where we live in those places in Chutzlaretz, be it New York, be it London, be it whatever. It's, 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 you know, we don't want to leave it. Were these four-fifths And the, the Levine were not, but that's, they were. But again, there's so many issues about how many were enslaved and how long the slavery really lasted. It wasn't 210 years of slavery. I think they say maximum 86 years. So there has to have been, between 210 and 86, a lot of interaction between the Jewish population. What, what are the Jews good at? We're good at e- economics, right? So they must have kicked in on the Egyptian economy, as they have done in every other country where the Jews have lived. It's, it's, it's my, this is truly mind-blowing. And therefore, what was the whole idea? Think about this for a second. Taking them out for three days would be a test. Who is going to come on the initial pilot trip to leave Egypt? And of course, what is, the, what is the mindset? That those who are prepared to step up and leave Egypt, even for a temporary period of time, they're the ones we know that really want to leave, and we're good to go when, when, when we get the signal. After Makat B'chorot, they're the ones that are going to leave. What happens to the rest? They'll stay in Egypt and lit bolel, and they'll disappear. But they won't necessarily die in a plague of three days uh, of the darkness. But of course, what happened was that it didn't work out like that. The three-day, I'm not going to call it vacation, but the three-day trip out of Egypt in the end was nixed. 
But the interesting thing is that the suggestion of the three-day trip is that it was there as an option to test the water. Who is going to want to go and who is going to want to stay? I thought to myself, the Jewish agency, if they gave every Jew in America a ticket to come to Israel for three days, how many of those Jews would really take the, take the, the ticket? There's birthright. Baruch Hashem, you're bringing the young people to Israel. In whatever way you bring them. The fact is, they come there, they'll see something Jewish. For many of them, the first Jewish experience in their lives. But what about the rank and file? You know, the 60% that vote Democrat who have never been to Israel. Staggering statistic. How many American Jews have never visited Israel? Uh, they believe all the propaganda about Israel, but they've never been here. <coughs> and, and again, you wonder what would have happened. Give them the ticket and see whether they'll come. I don't know. I'm really not sure. But listen to this final thing. It's, 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 I tell you, it really is mind-blowing. So he says, Ka'amor, this is the second paragraph on page 3. The Hebrew. So there's two stage redemption, three days, followed by permanent. So the three days is not stealing the mind of Pharaoh. It's testing the Jewish people. Who wants to go and who doesn't want to go? Is your passport in order? Is your passport not in order? Are you ready to leave? Who is faithful to the tradition of the Avod, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? To leave behind the abominations of Egypt. Who's not prepared to go? So we can test it. Three days. Who's going to prepare to make that short trip and who is not? And just on the next line in the middle, They're the ones that were fitting to be redeemed if they're prepared to go. The ones that weren't prepared to go. To go for three days to make an offering to God. They're so... Uh, uh, assimilated into, into the Egyptian society, but Tavod Mitzrayim, Einam Ruim Ligula. They're never going to leave. It's a very fright, very scary scenario that the rabbi is painting here, uh, thinking about the Monday situation in 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 uh, in, in, in the, what we call the Gola. But I don't want to really think about that too much. But he says like this, and look at the next paragraph. Zod Aita Tochnit Hashemaimin. He says, this was a heavenly plan. So the reality of the three days is not, it's not a ploy. It's a reality. It was going to test the Jews. They would come, they, the ones who were prepared to come would then be the ones that signed on the, on the as you say, on the dotted line. And then, they, and then the rest would have to be left behind. And, and that would be, you know, one day they'll come like, they come to Spain and they find a church which had a, a Magain David, once upon a time, had a mezuzah. And you say, Jews used to live here. I remember when I went to Poland, you see the indentations on the doors, right, where the mezuzahs used to be. Um, it's just, again, so sad when you go there. And look what, just the last paragraph here. It's a simon for our days that this could happen again, that just part will stay there and that's it. That's, that's, that's what really bothers me. And the more that people get het up, particularly in the, what I call the anti-Zionist rhetoric, I, I know Zionism is not perfect. I know secular Zionism is particularly not perfect. But the rhetoric becomes the distinction, and, and you're, you're expecting that distinction between what I'm calling Medinat Israel and Eretz Israel sometimes just gets blurred. And people become so bound up. I hear these demonstrations, I saw them in New York, where, you know, sort of cursing out the Israeli government and everything else. That's a very dangerous game to play because you're disconnecting from Israel, what Israel means in the 21st century. And Nothing is perfect, and I have realized all the religious objections, and I, I, I appreciate that. But to go to that extreme does create a disconnect, which one day, I don't know, Mashiach comes and says, go to Israel, we're in Williamsburg, what's going to be better for us? I'm not sure what people are going to say. I hope they make the right decision. I really do. Oh, very few came. Very few. 40,000. 40, and they stayed behind. Yeah, and today 7 million Jews in Israel. One Jew goes on the Temple Mount for 15 minutes. May not like the gentleman. Next thing you know, the United Nations having an emergency meeting. What a mad world we're living in. It's not normal. It's really not normal. Whether you like the, the politics or not, but 
for one Jew to go on the Temple Mount and you're going to create a, that Russia and China, everybody else is going to get involved. It's, it's truly mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. This is, this is unfortunately what we're living at the moment. But Mashiach type, we know that. Listen, it, it's, it's credible. It is extraordinary. That's the word I would use, probably even more so. I'd say that's an understatement. Um, I just want to finish the last paragraph here, and then we've got one final item, which is delicious. The, the final item I, I, I've saved for the end. But he says, <laughs> What happened was Pharaoh sort of spoiled the whole thing, because he said no to the whole concept of stage one. Three days is out, and then, of course, at that point, as I said on the side, second stage had to be implemented, implemented immediately, the immediate... Exodus after the, the Makkah Bechorot, uh, Pero hardened his heart, and then, of course, four-fifths died during the Chosha, as we know it, either from the Pasuk or from the Midrash. What Rav Goran has said, which I think is so interesting, is that the three-day theme, which to me was always the elephant in the room, it's, it's coming up again and again. I never understood what this three days was all about. If we're going, we're going. If we're staying, we're staying. What, what's the three days? And he explains it so beautifully that this was a test. It wasn't trying to say to Pharaoh, we're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. It was saying to, to, to the Jewish people, are you prepared to leave? And the three-day test is something which repeats itself over and over until Pharaoh says no, and then that's it. That's, that's, that's shelved, and then the Yitzhak Mitzrayim takes place. Uh, Mind-blowing. I mean, to me, Chidush Gadol, absolutely incredible. The last item, and I, 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 I'm just so desperate to, to get to this last item that I, I apologize if I'm doing this too quickly. Um, point number three. We've gone top, beginning of the parsha. We've gone what I call middle. We're now in the middle of the parsha with the three days, the theme beginning. Parsha Shema, of course, it carries through next week and the week after. And now we're going to go to the bottom of the parsha. Right, the bottom of the night. We're right at the end of the parsha, and we're going to see something which is truly spectacular. I mentioned in a shir. Oh, it must have been oh, six months. Ago. Oh gosh, was it that long ago? Five or six months ago, Yaakov Kamenetsky. I know some some people that actually knew him and were very uh, aware, uh, connected with him. Very very special. I'm sorry, I never met him. Um, and his sefer, the sefer MS Yaakov, is a fabulous sefer. Fabulous. I actually, when it came out, I sent. Uh, I, got, I went to the the bank in London because I was sitting in England. I sent dollars to Rabbi Kamineski, one of the sons. He sent me back change. Actually, I paid too much for it. Got the original copy of the MS Theaka. It was it was a volume. It was brought out again and it was added to. But I have the original one. Um, he says the following: We know by the end of Parsha Shmuel, big trouble. Right? The Jews are really being oppressed by the. Um, by Paro and by the Egyptians, and this pasuk right at the end of the parsha, bottom of page three, Shmot chapter five verse nine, Tichbad Avodal Nashim. Remember, the story is the work gets more intense. Ve'yasuba ve'al Yeshu b'divrei Sheker. Pharaoh says, "Do not Yeshu means to play around shashuim. Do not indulge in words of Sheker of things which are false." And of course, it's unclear to us, what does that mean? So if you turn over to the fourth page, you'll see there is Midrash Rabbah. And Midrash Rabbah, Shemot Rabbah, says the following, top of page four, The Jews had books. When have we ever been far away from books or manuscripts? And they had manuscripts. What were the manuscripts? They would study them from Shabbos to Shabbos. They had text. They couldn't study during the week summer. So they had their Shabbos, you know, like here, you go to shul, you get a hundred pamphlets thrown in your face. I'm, I'm not sure half of them, I don't know what, what, it, what they are about. Uh, more about advertising, I think, but whatever. The reality of it is, that's what they had. They had um, um, manuscripts. Lomar, to tell them, Shakadish Baruch Hu Go'alan, to promise them a redemption. The fish are you nachim b'shabbat? Because originally they had Saturday off; they didn't have to work Saturday. So Amar lahem paros Pharaoh now turned nasty, even more nasty than he was, and he said, "Tichbad avodal and Hashem is going to get worse with the people of the work." What does that mean? Are you mishdashim? Do not take those manuscripts. You have to put them away because I'm not giving you time to study them. Even Shabbat, you are 
on and not off. For all you nefishim beyond the Shabbat do not rest on Shabbos. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says, what was in these manuscripts? What was the Devarim Niflaim that gave them such a chizm? He says the following, and it, it's, I don't know, it just it brings me to tears thinking about this. The, 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 the psalm that we say every Friday night to welcome in the Shabbat, right? If you go to Kabbalah Shabbat, you stubborn at home, we all know Shabbos begins, one of the, one of the sort of, you know, the, the cut-off points, when you say, Mizmor Shir Liyom Shabbat, the psalm in praise of the day of Shabbat. The only problem is, when you actually look at Mizmor Shir Liyom Shabbat, and look at all the words in Mizmor Shir Liyom Shabbat, there's nothing there about Shabbos. It's absolutely devoid of any reference to Shabbat, right? Tzadik Katama Yifrak, Eres Balvanon Yizkeh, um, okay, it's a beautiful story. I, my Rebbe in London, my teacher, Rebbe Lopian, Gershon Lopian, when he was 17, he was already not well, uh, I sent him a letter. I was already in the States and I wrote him. I said, Rebbe Gershon, I want to wish you the bracha of your grandfather. His grandfather, Rebbe Elia Lopian, came to Eretz Israel, came to Israel in 1951. And he wanted to sit and learn for the rest of his life. And they heard that the great Mashkiach, he was in London for 25 years, came to Eretz Yisrael, and they didn't want to leave him alone. And they wanted him to be Mashkiach in Kfar Hasidim, which is right in the north of Israel. And he didn't, wasn't sure what would he do, should he go. He was in his 70s. He was uh, not a youngster anymore. So he went to the Chazanish. Chazanish was still alive, Rav Karolitz in Bnei Brak. And Rav Karolitz looked at him and said, Rebellia, he says, we say every Friday night, Oh, do you know Seva, even though you've reached an old age, you should always be eternally young. That was the bracha he gave him, and he was the mashkia for another 20 years. He died in 1970. Unbelievable. Rebellion was really something else. So I wrote to his, his grandson, I said, Gershon, you should always get the same bracha to live as long as you can. And never, he didn't live to 90. He died, I think he was 73 when he passed away. But, you know, it was, it was, I thought it was a, 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 an idea to share with the Rebbe. Um, says Rav, Rav Kamenetsky, and he says, incredible concept. He said, what were these Megillah? What, was, what were they reading? They were reading Mizmah Shil Yom HaShabbat. In fact, the tradition is that there's 10 Psalms from Psalm 90, Tzadik, through to 99. All of those Psalms were written Tfilah Moshe. One of them begins, Tfilah Moshe. It's actually written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Some say Mizmah Shil Yom HaShabbat was added in by Moshe, but actually written by Adam. I mean, there's all different tradition, but not by David Amela. Okay, that's a, a good quiz question. Who wrote the book of Psalm? Yes, David Amela, but not all of it. There are a lot of chunks. I think the rabbis say ten people, ten different authors of the book of Tehillim. The reality is, Mizma Shiliyom Shabbat was something they had in their hands every week. What does Mizma Shiliyom Shabbat talk about? It talks about the question of Tzadik Varalo. Rasha V'tovla. Right? That you have this question. Look at the wording of Mizma Shiliyama Shabbat. I don't know if you can just pass me a siddha. There must be a siddha on the... Because I didn't bring a siddha with me. At the time I... Fi- ah, perfect. Just wanna, I'll, I'll just read out... I'll even read out in the English because you'll see what... Con- oh, sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Um, and it says the following. And we know it because... Again, if you're if you daven in the good Yekish shuls, we actually sing the tune for this. Uh, daven in Broyers, they have a whole choir singing this, so it's really beautiful. Um, and it says the following: It's a song of Sabbath. It is good to thank Hashem. Firstly, we're talking about the plus side. Thank Hashem for things that He's done for us. Um, and then it goes on right in the middle. A boar cannot know, fool cannot understand this. When the wicked bloom like grass and all the doers of iniquity blossom, it is to destroy them till eternity. And you remain exalted, Hashem. For behold, your enemies, behold, your enemies shall perish, dispersed all the doers of iniquity as exalted. It said, we, we, we know this, Psukim, but it's nothing to do with Shabbos. It's to do with good people having a very tough time and evil people prospering and the, 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 the hope, the plan, the, the, the prayers to look forward to a day when righteousness will prevail. They will still be fruitful in old age, vigorous and fresh. They will be declared, Shem is just my rock in whom there is no wrong. So all of this was being read every Shabbos in Mitzrayim. It was done in order to give Am Yisrael a chizuk. 
they would take it to their Bote Midrash. Remember, Yehuda was sent on a pilot trip to Mitzrayim to open up the yeshiva. And they had in Goshen in various other places different yeshivot, different places of study. So what happened was that you had this, these incredible manuscripts. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote this stuff. And in fact, we say in Kabbalat Shabbat, we read it every Friday night, that these are psalms, which are psalms of encouragement, psalms of chizot. These are fantastic psalms of, of, of inspiration. These were what the Jews of Egypt were surviving on. When they read this stuff, it gave them a chizot. Moshe was saying to them, be inspired. Realize that this is only a temporary moment in your existence. You're going to become free. You're going to become, not only free, you're going to become a nation, a light to the whole world. As they say in America, hang in there. You've just got to continue and, 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 and hope for the best. And says Rav, Rav, uh, uh, Rav Kamenetsky so beautifully, he says, Pharaoh knew this. Pharaoh was wicked. He knew that you take away this inspiration, you hit the Jews where it hurts. Because they couldn't sit and study this for, for, for that whole period of time. And he understood what that meant to them, and this was why it was so evil, his decree. Don't use these Megillot um, anymore from Shabbat to Shabbat. And in fact, Rav, Rav Kamenetsky points out in the last paragraph, and I'll leave you just to look at this, uh, uh, you can take these away and look at it uh, uh, yourselves, but he says, Lefi, this is page 4, the last Hebrew paragraph, Lefi now, what I explain now, the Gemara says, Moshe Kotav Sefer Eor. He wrote the book of Job. You ever studied the book of Job? Pretty depressing. Right? It's about a guy, he was a good guy, and he had t- terrible Taurus, Gehakta Taurus. And the reality is that, again, why would Moshe write such a book? He was trying to impress Am Yisrael. You're going through a terrible time. Never. It's so difficult. But remember, at the end of the day, your Eov does come out of it at the end, and you will come out of it in the end. It's, it's something which, you know, is, is the ultimate uh, support system for Am Yisrael. And he, and he says, Rabbi Kamenetsky, so beautifully, Why write the book of Job? What's Moshe getting out of this? The book is asking the question, Why do the, pros- why do the wicked prosper? Why do the tzaddikim suffer? The Jews were really challenged on this. Moshe wanted them to study the book to know what is real. Sometimes the answer is we don't know. But at least let's get to the point where we don't know. And we recognize that we don't know. But at least let's try. Maybe all of this was what the Jews read every Shabbos. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I just want to add one Nakuda, because I'm coming to the end of my time here. I want to add one Nakuda, which I wrote at the bottom here. The tradition of Kabbalat Shabbat, right? I think it's been a little bit hijacked, uh, pardon me saying so, with the, ver- with the tunes of a certain rabbi who, whether you like them or you don't like them, whether you like him, you don't like him, he was a special man, no question about that, but a lot of questions are still prevailing about the whole history, and I don't want to go into that. I was asked awkward questions by my students, I've got to tell you, and it's very hard to answer, but reality of it is, Kabbalat Shabbat is a phenomenal tefillah. Because what are we doing, Kabbalat Shabbat? We are talking about this, all these Megillah are being read all over again. But why? Why were they being read over again? Think about it. Who introduced Kabbalat Shabbat? The Kabbalists in Safat. 15th century, 16th century. Yosef Cairo, Shlomo Alkabes, you know, all the famous names. Where were they all coming from, these guys? They were coming from Spain. Not only were they coming from Spain, they had a Kahila which was made up of people who ran away from Spain. Can you imagine, I can't imagine, can you imagine how soul-destroying what happened in Spain must have been to those people? They lived at the, 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 the glorious Spanish era of, of, of Jews, and it's all gone. It's all been destroyed. Everything. They left. 500 years later, they want to give you a Spanish passport now, a Portuguese, but thank you very much. 500 years later, you, know, you threw us out, right? And 
you know, as, as somebody said to me, why would I want to go back to Poland and all these places? Because the reality is, they threw us out, no, they threw us out, they killed us. So, the, rea- the, 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 the Kabbalists knew, maybe this is why they introduced Kabbalat Shabbat. Because on Shabbos, we have time to read these beautiful songs, maybe to sing them, don't get me wrong, singing is good, but on top of that, thinking. Think about what the issues that they raise, think about the beautiful ideas that they, they, they give us, and the tremendous chizuk that they present to us, not only for the Jews of the 15th century, not only the Jews of the 16th century, I would argue Jews of the 21st century as well. Post-Holocaust, how inspirational it has to be that we can sit down again on Friday night, and if you daven by the Sephardi minion, I have Shashim as well, on top of that, even, even more precious, but the reality of it is, to have these fantastic messages, the Megillot are alive again, they are giving us this chizah. I know it's hard. We're living, we look around us and, you know, we see a world with, as I said, one Jew on the Harabai and the whole world goes crazy. We're not living in a normal world and COVIDs and all the other things that we have to deal with. But that Friday night service is so beautiful. Whether you do it at home, whether you do it in shul, the fact is, those are the Megillot Rav Kamenetsky speaks about, and we are mishta'ashim, I love that word, mishta'ashim, we're, 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 we're chewing them over all over again, because we need that chizr, we need that message to be given to us, it's not all over, Am Yisrael remarkably, one final thought, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, in the introduction to his siddur, he says, I know we've had credible miracles, miracle of giving of the Torah, we had the miracle of Egypt, we had the miracle of this, the miracle of, you name it, he says the biggest nace, still, without question, is the survival of the Jewish people. He wrote this 300 years ago. How much more so would he say it in the year 2023? The survival of Amma, not only survival, we're, 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 we, we go and we're in Eretz Yisrael, and look, what, look what's around us, it's just mind-blowing. And that is something for Chizuk, that's something that we can, we can dwell on, and we can be inspired, and Bezrat Hashem, Think about the Chadodi. I just want to tell you one, one reason for a minute. You may have wondered, the tune changes in the middle. Why? So the Halacha said, the Minhogim say. Minhogim say because the second part of the Chadodi should be a quicker tune than the first. Da, 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 da. You know, we had the Gerenigan or whatever it is. And the answer is because that's symbolic of the, of the Geula. We start off with a very slow tune maybe, but by the end of the Chododi we're singing a very fast tune. Symbolically, because the Chododi, Boi Kala is not just the Kala of Shabbat, but Boi Kala, Mashiach, and everything that it represents. And that's the symbolism of the fast tune, that it should be quick, it should be happening, it should be coming. And that, what Rav Kamenevsky has done here, is turn the whole Kabbalat Shabbat into what I would argue the most inspirational tefillah of the whole week. Think something to think about. Parashat Shemot, Top, middle, and now the bottom. I hope it was something. I hope something for you to take away. Bezrat Hashem next week. Next week. I look forward. Thank you, everybody.